The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. 2023, and according to Forbes magazine, only 10% of Fortune 500 companies are led by women. The magazine, however, sees that 10% as a new milestone. On the surface, these numbers may not seem like a cause for celebration. They are, though, when one considers the history of women achieving top leadership roles in business, says the magazine. The history of women at the top of Fortune 500 companies included just two CEOs for decades. Forbes point out, points out that as recently as the year 2000, there were only four women who led Fortune 500 companies. So fast forward today, and 53 women are in the top spot at Fortune 500 companies. So where to from here? Does that mean it's now a straight line to gender parity? Well, in a Harvard Business Review study from 2006, it says when there's only one woman on a board, in that company, progress is difficult. But when there are three or more women who are on a board, then dynamics shift. I invited Jennifer Reynolds, the CEO of Women Corporate Directors, to join me for a conversation that matters about changes in the structure of boardrooms and how companies benefit more from women and greater diversity in senior roles. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you, delighted to be here. Tell us a little bit more about the foundation, Women Corporate Directors. What exactly is your mandate? And then how do you go about manifesting that? So Women Corporate Directors has been around for close to 25 years. It's a network of 2,500 women corporate directors, so women serving on boards today, both public and private. And um, we're about 45% of our membership is in the U.S. The rest is spread over five continents, very active membership in LATAM, in Europe, Africa, Asia. So very, very diverse group. And clearly we're advocating for better diversity in boardrooms and stronger representation of women in boardrooms. Uh, but what we do is also try to ensure that our board members are the best equipped to serve on those boards. And so we do a lot of corporate uh, governance education type of, of programming uh, along with our events. So it takes the form of in-person events in the various cities that we have chapters in around the world. Uh, where we discuss these really pressing issues for directors and for the economy. Uh, we also have virtual programming that happens globally. And then we have our institutes, which happen around the world. Our largest one happens in New York City on June 8th and 9th this year, where we gather over 200 uh, corporate directors for over two days of discussions and, and education and celebrating some of those companies who have done an absolutely wonderful job of creating businesses which are not only financially uh, performing, but also pursuing it in a sustainable manner and, and pursuing goals around the ESG, the environmental, the social and the governance as well. So in my introduction, I talked about the fact that we're you know, looking at 53 uh, women in top CEO positions in Fortune 500 companies. When you hear that number, do you go, uh, I wish we were doing better, or do you agree that this is an indication that, that we're moving in the right direction? Actually, I do disagree with the article, to be honest. I think that we, where we've seen in, in certain countries around the world, um, we've seen the numbers of women on board increase, in particular in large organizations. So we, we are seeing some progress there. But if you look at those CEO numbers, yes, 
10% is more than 2%, <laughs> but yeah. it really is not moving in a manner as it should be. And if you think more broadly, if you just look, De Deloitte did a study um, looking at the global numbers of CEOs and it's closer to 5%, um, you know, if you really think, and 5% is probably a good number to use generally. Um, like I said, larger companies tend to do a little bit better in terms of getting better representation on boards in the executive suite. Um, but generally, we're not seeing those CEO numbers and the executive suite numbers move as quickly as I think they should be moving. Because the reality is, is that women have represented over 50% of the university graduates for three decades now. So we have a pipeline. It's just not making it to the executive suite. So we need to think about, think very hard about why that is. Do you have an answer for that question as to why? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of bias and we all hope it's unconscious bias as we think about what does a leader look like? What is, you know, what are the qualities that we're looking for in leadership? And I, I think that often uh, women are just not seen as leaders and it starts mid-career. I think if you think about the junior roles where you're, you're more technical in terms of the delivery of, of what you're doing day to day. Um, so it's, it's easier to have a fair assessment of something that's very technical, right? A financial model or something of that nature. Um, whereas as you move up the pipeline into management, you've got... Uh, a more subjective uh, sort of evaluation that, that tends to happen. And so there's been all kinds of studies by McKinsey and others that you just see men get promoted in greater numbers as you move up the pipeline, as you go from manager to VP, as you go from VP to a more senior director and then into the executive suite. So I think we really need to challenge ourselves throughout the entire talent pipeline because you can't wait to the executive suite because it's too late by that point, right? Because the problem started you know, two, three levels down in the organization. So it takes a lot of discipline to understand how you're evaluating talent and how you may hopefully unconsciously be screening out some of those leaders of the future, some people who don't look like yesterday's leaders, but I think they look like tomorrow's leaders. Well, as you pointed out earlier, we take a look at the number of women who are graduating from you know, uh, degree programs uh, in university, they are outnumbering their male counterparts. But what happens then in these early stages in these companies that then sees that advantage somehow seem to slip away? Yeah, I think that a lot of it um, is around relationship building, as I was talking about that subjective nature. So in your career, in order to progress into really senior roles, it does become about a relationships, right? You need someone who, who leads you to that next role. You need someone who, when you're not in the room, come promotion time, pounds the table and says, this person needs to get promoted. And so men tend to naturally form a lot of those relationships. For women, it doesn't tend to come that naturally. And that's based on research. It's not my own personal opinion. There's lots of studies that sort of show those sponsorship relationships aren't happening for women. So we need to think about and challenge executives and say, well, who who are your top five right now? And, and what do they look like, right? And challenge people to, same like same, right? And we all do it. And this is not a, a thing that just men do. This is something everybody does. You, you seek out common things to, to relate to someone over, right? So that's part of the reason that, you know, I think if all of the leaders of the vast majority are men or of a certain background, they're going to tend to attract or be drawn to people like that, which then it sort of becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy. You're not really 
getting that diversity. So it, it really, it's a challenge. And I will say that even in companies where they've got really good talent management programs, or I would say more sophisticated talent management programs, they're still struggling. They're still struggling with the issues I was just talking about. So it's not an easy nut to crack. I don't over, oversimplify this um, because it really is challenging ourselves to not just hire diversity, but include it and, and make sure you actually want it there. And a lot of times, whether we're talking about gender, whether we're talking about ethnicity or other forms of, um, of diversity, we don't actually want that around the table. I got to get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlem Brown, BD Development, viewers and listeners. Well, isn't that interesting because of course diversity, uh, inclusion, equality really are catchphrases at the moment within the corporate sector. But and possibly I, the first step is of course talking to it and appreciating it. But as you point out, really embracing that and saying uh, merit, uh, personality, networking abilities, a variety of all these things really do matter and they have to be honored, but then also uh, rewarded. Exactly. And so it's how do you, those people in your organizations who are good talent managers, good at developing people and, and good at developing diverse people, you need to figure out how you include that in your compensation system, right? So that it, it does matter that you've managed to assemble a very diverse team. And it does matter. Not only is it diverse, it's functional. It's performing really well. And, and so those people need to certainly be held up as an example of, this is how it's done and, and hopefully they can teach others you know to run their businesses in in the same sort of way uh, but often there is a disconnect between the big grandiose announcement of we're going to have whatever the number is 30 percent women in these roles and 40 percent women in these roles or, or diverse uh, representation and the actual work that needs to get done to make it happen uh, but but i will say you know, if you think about public, public companies today, investors are looking hard at this. And, and if you make a big announcement, whether it's about diversity or another goal, um, you know, a social or an environmental goal, they're starting to hold people's feet to the fire and they want to see you demonstrate that you actually are performing on that front. So I think it's going to become harder and harder to hide uh, on this issue. Companies need to speak out. And once you've spoken out, then you have to answer to the people who are checking in on you. Do these companies not speak out by performance? Uh, what are the statistics of companies that have embraced women uh, throughout the organization, on the board, and even in roles? How are they performing compared to their counterparts? Well, there is actually a lot of data that supports that diversity, whether it's gender diversity or broader forms of diversity, actually does equate with better performance. So there's been Credit Suisse has done those, those studies, McKinsey has done those studies. So it actually does, it, it does improve your performance. Diversity does improve your, your, your performance. And I think it's for a variety of reasons. I think, you know, more diverse voices around the table is better for business. But I think it's also about people who are taking talent seriously and really looking at you know matrices of skill sets and thinking this is really what i need as opposed to 
just who was the easiest to hire or who was the most like me or who did I, you know, chit chat the best with in the interview. It's, it's a lot more discipline to create that environment. And, and I think that's why it outperforms as well. So one consideration, and I am asking you for the answer here, um, you can take somebody who is a high level uh, senior uh, performer within the company. Does that make them an ideal fit for the boardroom? And if not, then how do you close that, that, that knowledge gap so that they are the appropriate fit? That's a great question because it actually is a, a different skill set. Often those skills we have as senior executives are quite helpful in the boardroom, but your job's different as, you know, from a governance perspective. You're not supposed to have your fingers in there and be trying to run the organization and that's not your job and getting into the weeds on things, you know, it really is to provide much more strategic advice uh, and bring certain you know, backgrounds or um, skill sets, expertise to the table that perhaps they don't have, uh, you know, around the boardroom at that point. It, so it's more about um, thinking over the long term as opposed to the day to day stuff. Leave management to do all that day to day operational issues. That's not your job as a board member. So I think that often for people is a bit of a, a jump, right, to think differently and to be able to leave that leave that operational stuff to those who are that's their job every day and and stick with the strategic elements and think about the future and what are the big challenges that are coming at us as an organization what do we need to be thinking about you know those who are running a day-to-day -day business often get bogged down in the day-to-day -day, right and don't have time to sort of be thinking about some of these big things uh, that are coming up in the future so hopefully in the boardroom you're having those discussions as well about you know, what are our biggest risks? What are the biggest opportunities? And, you know, we really are in very complex transformative times, you know, whether you think about it from a technology perspective, new technology, cybersecurity issues, whether you think about geopolitical, which has implications for supply chain, think about a high inflation environment, which we haven't faced in decades. These are all huge issues which are going to change the way that we run our businesses and our economies and so it is it really you know arguably uh it's one of the most complex times i think for for board members and business leaders right now there's our second break we'll be back in a moment the production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a Patreon supporter. Thank you to Audlin Brown and BD Developments for their support. You mentioned that Deloitte report. I uh, managed to review it and it posed the question, um, are there enough women who have the uh, requisite skill set and credentials to move into uh, boardroom vacancies, or are we seeing the same women on multiple boards? Um, and this comes back to a question of where do you come in uh, with the women corporate directors in being able to help fill that gap? I think that, um, and you see this in many countries where you have the go-to group of women, right? Who get asked every time a board seat comes up, they're gonna get that call. So hopefully what happens is that they then call someone else who isn't boarded up, as we say, and who is looking for roles. So we do need to go spread that out, right? Go to the next generation or go to that next group, you know, outside of that core group that's probably the first first ones who are getting on in, in, in different um, 
countries. Um, I think the way that you have to think about that, though, is I think go back 10 years and you would have seen that everybody had to be a CEO was the feeling, right? You have to have been a CEO to be on a board. And I think we're slowly breaking that down and, and people are understanding, you know what, having eight CEOs around a table actually might not be the best thing here. Um, you're probably getting a lot of similarity there and the types of personalities, you know, might not, that's not diversity to my mind around the table. So I think there's a recognition that you need different skill sets, different backgrounds from, you know, whether it's a different area of expertise, whether it's a, a you know, um, a different sort of corporate experience than, you know, traditional, I, I came up through the ranks and I'm a, a CEO. So that's helping. I think there's also a recognition that um, we don't all have to be in our 60s or 70s to be on a board. There's, you know, these are times where you need intergenerational sort of perspectives uh, on some of these issues. So I think that's broadening the pool as well. But in terms of what we do, that's, you know, we are creating that global network of corporate directors who are helping each other uh, make sure that we're seeing those opportunities and getting those opportunities. We obviously work with the corporate world as well to make sure that they're coming to us. If you have a board role to fill, come to us. And, and we have experienced directors who are already on boards, very experienced. And so um, that's certainly the goal of the organization is to make sure that we're bringing the best opportunities to, to the women who are involved with it and that we're having an impact in boardrooms. One of the other statistics that I mentioned off the top was that boards with three or more women see a progression towards greater inclusion, diversity, equity, and are more focused on ESG principles as well, coupled with the outcome of uh, better uh, financial performance. How close do you think we are to be able to start to see an increase at the board level for women so that they can bring those kinds of benefits to corporations? Yeah, I think realistically we're seeing that in the largest organizations, right? The larger companies tend to get to that three or more threshold of women on their boards. Um, not enough for a parity, let me tell you that. But <laughs> at the 30% level at the biggest companies, I think we're seeing that. And so I think you're seeing greater impact. We're starting to see more women in leadership roles on board committees, uh, particularly the audit committee or, you know, some of those, those leadership roles within a board are very important as well because they lead to the chair role of the board. And that is the most influential person clearly uh, around the table. So, um, and, and there we're still not seeing the progress we should. The chair role, we're still at about 5% of, of chairs or lead directors as they're called in some cases uh, are, are women. So we certainly need to see more there. But if you step outside of the um, larger companies, that's where progress is slower. Um, that's where we're just not seeing, you know, three women. If you're lucky, you've got one, maybe mm -hmm. two on some of those mid-sized to smaller companies. So, uh, you know, I think we, we need to see it trickle down in our economy to really start having an impact. It's great if the hugest companies, the largest companies have more women on their boards, but we know that our economy is made up also of a lot of mid-size and smaller companies and and it's important to see representation there too third and final break we'll be right back the production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a patreon supporter thank you to Audlin brown and bd developments for their support so the companies that we're talking about are, of course, um, functioning within a free market 
enterprise. They are, you know, the spirit of capitalism or a new spirit of capitalism as the Trilateral Commission just recently uh, published a book about it. Would it be counterproductive to mandate to public companies that you have to have a minimum of three women? Well, you certainly have around the world examples of that, right? Where we've seen quotas imposed um, and, um, and it's worked. You know, you think about France, they said it's 40%. Well, they have 40% now. And, you know, there's other Scandinavian countries where they've done that, others in Europe, um, and it's worked. And the argument for that is that, um, you know, once it's therefore imposed and once you have women on the board, then there's a recognition that, oh, this was actually a good thing. And there are actually women out there who are quite qualified and it wasn't that hard to actually find them. Um, the argument against that, which is quite probably more prevalent, I would say, globally, is that, oh, then they just become the quota seat. Right. And so it discredits them, actually, because they're the quota seat. Um, and, and so. You know, it, it depends, as I said, what part of the world you're in, how acceptable this idea of quotas is. I will say I certainly am a big supporter of companies having targets and saying, this is our target. This is where we want to get to. And then answering back and saying, OK, we didn't get there this year for X, Y, Z reasons uh, or we did. And we, we were successful and this is what we did. And I think that, you know, that's really important. If you don't even have a target, you're not serious. You don't care. Like, you can't tell me that you're serious about this if you don't even have a goal. Is the marketplace starting to put that kind of requirement on companies, even if there isn't a legal mandate? The marketplace is saying, as you pointed out earlier, we're watching the structure of the board, what the performance is, and if you're not meeting the kind of criteria that we believe from a societal perspective is important, well then we're going to be potentially looking to invest our money elsewhere. Is that... in? And to my thinking, that is really what will will motivate companies to do uh, to make the changes that it would be necessary. Absolutely, it is. I mean, investor-driven change—that's the best kind, right? Because that's then companies get serious about it. Um, you know, even in some regimes, you've got something called you know diversity disclosure, where you you talk about your diversity, but there's no quota. It's just you talk about it. So. You know, maybe that's effective to a certain degree, but real change will come with investors telling you to change, because if you want capital, you're going to need to change. And so we, we're seeing large investors uh, make very bold statements around not supporting slates of directors, which are not diverse. Um, we're seeing that around many social issues and environmental issues and, and speaking out and saying, if you don't care about these things, uh, you're not the kind of company we want to invest in and capital will go elsewhere. So certainly that is a big driver. And um, we're seeing more and more uh, of these big institutional investors who have mandates around ESG issues. Uh, and I think it's really important. And I, I think that we're starting to see um, as you know, proxy voting seasons come along, actions being taken that are driving change. Well, we may not be where we want to be at the moment, but I feel that we're moving in the right direction and the work that you and women corporate directors are doing uh, is helping to support and hopefully accelerate that change. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleased to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a Patreon supporter. Thank you to Audlin Brown and BD Developments for their support.